everyone, and welcome to the October 2nd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Former QMEs Dr. Timothy C. Howard, Dr. Mira Johnny, and Dr. Benjamin Simon have filed a lawsuit in the Los Angeles Superior Court against the California Department of Industrial Relations, its director, Christine Baker, and other officials seeking a writ of mandate ordering their reinstatement and reappointment as a QME. Howard has been licensed as an orthopedist since 1971 and has performed 400 to 500 total knee and hip surgeries and 200 to 300 spinal surgeries. He was first appointed as a QME in 2005 and has prepared about 1,500 QME reports. Johnny has been licensed as a chiropractor since 2000 and was first appointed as a QME in 2001, and Simon has practiced medicine as a cardiologist for 30 years, during which time he has performed thousands of interventional procedures. He has been a QME since 2015 and has prepared about 150 QME reports. Prior to the DWC's denial of their request for reappointment as a QME, none of them claimed to have received any billing or other complaints from the DWC. They allege that in addition to these three plaintiffs, so far about 400 QMEs have now been similarly denied reappointment. Their 134-page lawsuit cites a variety of reasons for their reinstatement as a QME. They say that the DWC has engaged in a scorched-earth policy to deny reappointment licenses to qualified medical evaluators without due process of law, including without a hearing to challenge mirror accusations. They claim the DWC now imposes new and different criteria governing such reappointments and the medical legal fee schedule applicable to QMEs in California. The new policy, they claim, is the product of illegal underground regulations. These underground regulations are being used, they say, to impose new and different criteria that effectively eliminate hourly billing code 104. The three allege they have requested hearings to contest the denial of their reappointment and that the DIR refuses to allow them any of the hearings to request to present their case. Petitioners also say that a disproportionate number of QMEs who have been denied reappointment without a due process hearing reside in Los Angeles County, implying a hidden motive or rationale on the part of the DWC. Dr. Eduardo Aguizola, who is facing multiple counts of insurance fraud filed by Orange County prosecutors, claims Labor Code Section 4615, the automatic lien stay law, violates his rights to due process because it immediately stays all liens without notice or a hearing. The federal case was filed last May, and there have been several hearings in federal court on his request for a preliminary injunction halting the implementation of the new lien automatic stay law. The final brief by the California Attorney General on behalf of the DIR Director, Christine Baker, asserts that the lien claimants have not made their case. 
The Attorney General says that, despite submitting 10 declarations and 53 exhibits, the plaintiffs have still failed to establish that due process is being denied to the parties in this case or to lien claimants more broadly. The Attorney General said that not one declaration demonstrates that a lien claimant followed proper procedures for requesting adjudication of an issue of law or fact by a workers' compensation judge and was wrongly denied that adjudication. Further, not one declaration demonstrates that any party followed proper procedures and filed either a petition for reconsideration or a petition for removal to the WCAB to challenge the judge's action or lack thereof. The Attorney General further said they also failed to establish a likelihood of irreparable harm, which is a requirement for the issuance of an injunction. The hearing on the preliminary injunction will be concluded in mid-October. The Court of Appeal applied the going and coming rule to protect an employer from a civil lawsuit. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Morales Semental versus Genetech. Vincent Ong was a Genetech employee when his vehicle collided with a vehicle driven by Luis Gonzalez in 2012. A passenger in the Gonzalez vehicle, Marisol Morales, was killed in the collision. Ong told the officer who investigated the accident that he was driving to his employer, Genetech, in South San Francisco on his night off to collect resumes for some upcoming interviews he had. A few hours before the accident, Ong told his friend Dan Alvarez that he was going to Genentech to do something important for work. Ong resided in Haywood, California and commuted to Genentech in his own vehicle. Genentech never owned, leased, or possessed Ong's 1999 Range Rover or Land Rover, the vehicle he was driving at the time of the accident. Genentech did not require Ong to drive or own a vehicle and did not compensate him for travel time or expenses. During his deposition, Ong gave various reasons for his trip to Genentech that morning. He testified that he intended to stop at Genentech to retrieve old resumes he had left in his mailbox and some personal belongings from his locker on his way to visit his grandmother in a hospice. He also said one purpose of the trip to Genentech was to pick up the resume of his unemployed friend Dan Alvarez, who had asked Ong if he could recommend Alvarez for a job. But Alvarez stated he does not have a resume and never gave one to Ong. Plaintiff's lawsuit alleging Ong and Genentech were both liable for the accident that caused Marisol Morales' death. Plaintiff's claim against Genentech was based on the doctrine of respondeat superior. Genentech moved for summary judgment and the trial court entered judgment in favor of Genentech, dismissing it from the case and leaving Ong as the sole defendant. And the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal. They said that under the doctrine of respondeat superior, an employer is vicariously liable for the tortious conduct of its employees within the scope of their employment. The scope of employment has been interpreted broadly under respondeat superior doctrine in California. Nevertheless, there are exceptions to the respondeat superior doctrine. Pursuant to the going and coming rule, 
the employment relationship is suspended from the time the employee leaves until he returns, or that in commuting he is not rendering service to his employer. An employee's decision to take work home or to drive to work at an unusual time does not bring the trip within the scope of employment. Even accepting as true plaintiff's assertion that Ong took it upon himself to drive to Genentech on his day off to respond to a hiring crisis, an employee's unilateral decision to commute to work after hours does not bring the trip within this special errand rule. The court concluded by saying it declined plaintiff's invitation to expand the special errand exception. What the, they proposed, the court said, is an invitation to self-serving pretense by anyone with a plausible claim to supervisorial authority. And now our crime report. The U.S. Justice Department has brought new charges over a scheme that it says enabled Tenet Healthcare Corporation to fraudulently bill Medicaid for $400 million. William Moore, the ex-chief executive of Atlanta Medical Center Incorporated, which had been operated by Tenet, and Edmundo Cota, the ex-head of a clinic operator that provided prenatal care to Hispanic women, were charged in an indictment filed in Atlanta Federal Court. They were added as defendants in a case the Justice Department brought in February against John Holland, a former tenant senior vice president. The trio faced multiple charges, including conspiracy and wire fraud. The new charges came after Tenet and two of its Atlanta-area units reached a deal in October 2016 with the Justice Department and agreed then to pay more than $513 million to resolve criminal charges and criminal claims in a related case. The indictment said that Holland, Moore, and Coda engaged in a scheme where Tenet paid over $12 million in bribes to Clinica, which operated clinics in Georgia and South Carolina. In exchange, the owners and operators of Clinica referred patients to tenant hospitals and arranged for medical services for clinical patients at these hospitals. To justify the $12 million payment, Holland, Moore, Coda, and others created pretextual contracts between tenants' hospitals and Clinica, which provided services mostly to undocumented Hispanic women. Agerion Pharmaceuticals Incorporated will plead guilty to two misdemeanors and pay $40.1 million to resolve investigations into its marketing and sales of an expensive cholesterol drug. It also entered into a deferred prosecution agreement to resolve a charge that it conspired to violate the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, known as HIPAA. Prosecutors said after the FDA approved the drug Juxtapid for treating a rare genetic condition that causes high cholesterol in 2012, Egerion promoted it for patients who had not been diagnosed with the condition. Juxtapic cost $250,000 to $300,000 annually per patient. Sales representatives were trained to tell doctors and patients that Juxtapid would take patients out of harm's way and prevent impending heart attacks and strokes, despite the lack of data supporting those claims. 
Numerous patients discontinued using the drug after suffering conditions including liver toxicity and gastrointestinal distress, prosecutors said. The Justice Department said Ajarian's promotion of juxtapid for patients without the genetic condition also led to false claims for payments submitted to government health care programs, including Medicare. The SEC alleged Ajarian also misled investors by exaggerating how many new patients filled prescriptions for the drug. The Justice Department said three ex-Ajuran employees who brought a whistleblower lawsuit against the company will receive $4.7 million as part of its civil settlement. And in regulatory news, Governor Brown signed AB 1422 into law. It is cleanup legislation to last year's workers' compensation anti-fraud bills AB 1244 and SB 1160. The new law, AB 1422, confirms that the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board retains jurisdiction to resolve disputes about the applicability of the automatic state provisions to specific liens. This new provision is declaratory of existing law, which provides for the resolution of these disputes through the Board's current practices and procedures. The governor said, that nothing in last year's legislation creating the stay was intended or operated to divest the board from jurisdiction over these issues. The original fraud law was ambiguous in terms of the status of liens filed by companies who were not themselves part of a criminal prosecution. Under the revised law, the stay provision will apply not only to a person who is being prosecuted, but to a controlled entity as well. An entity is controlled by an individual if the individual is an officer or a director of the entity or a shareholder with a 10% or greater interest in the entity. In addition, the amendments address some other complications that have arisen. For example, in criminal law, a conviction is not entered until judgment is imposed, which usually means at the time of sentencing. With respect to addressing liens, that time frame does not work in cases where a provider pleads guilty, agrees to cooperate with prosecutors, and delays sentencing for an extended period. Other clarifications, such as the right to refuse to pay a bill of a convicted provider, simply fill in some gaps in the drafting of last year's bills. In some respects, the amendments are intended to be more explicit about what the legislature intended in the language in last year's enactments to mean, and these are designated as declaratory of existing law because it is clear that the new language is precisely what was intended by the legislature in its bill and SB 1160. The new law deletes language that terminates the stay on lien proceedings at the end of the criminal proceedings and specifies that the stay remains in effect until the completion of the special administrative proceedings that apply to liens filed by providers convicted of workers' comp fraud. With respect to the constitutional issue of due process over the automatic stay provisions, the new law added subsection E to Labor Code 4615, which now says the appeals board is not precluded from inquiring into and determining whether a lien is stayed or whether a lien claimant is controlled by a physician, practitioner, or provider. 
The DWC has posted an order adjusting the durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies, also known as the DME POS section of the official medical fee schedule to conform to the fourth quarter 2017 changes in the Medicare payment system. This was required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The order is effective for services rendered on or after October 1, 2017 and adopts the Medicare DME POS Quarter 4 2017 DME 17-D zip file. The 2017 Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition Fee Schedule file from DME 17-A updated January 6, 2017 zip file was not updated for the fourth quarter and remains in effect for services on or after October 1, 2017. The order adopting the adjustment can be found on the DWC website. And in medical news, the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner said that makers of fast-acting opioids will have to fund voluntary training for healthcare professionals who prescribe the drugs. This includes education on safe prescribing practices and non-opioid alternatives. The FDA issued letters notifying 74 manufacturers of instant-release opioid analgesics that their drugs will now be subject to a more stringent set of requirements under a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, also known as REMS. The REMS requires that training be made available to health care providers who prescribe instant-release opioids, including training on safe prescribing practices and consideration of non-opioid alternatives. The medications, which include Vicodin and Percocet, often combine oxycodone or hydrocodone with less powerful painkillers like acetaminophen. They account for 90% of all opioid painkillers prescribed. Manufacturers of long-acting opioids such as OxyContin, which release their doses over 12 hours or more, have been subject to the requirements since 2012. The FDA commissioner called the immediate release versions a potential gateway to addiction. And the founder of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing and Advocate for Opioid Reform said that to have the head of the FDA talk about addiction caused by medical treatment really suggests a change in what we hear about opioids. The prescriber training, which could take a year to organize and implement, must include considerations of many alternatives. And the agency's new opioid policy steering committee is considering whether there are circumstances when the FDA should require some form of mandatory education for healthcare professionals and how the agency would pursue such a goal. And the U.S. Attorney General is not letting up on efforts to go after doctors and other medical professionals who overprescribe opioids. Attorney General Jeff Sessions reiterated that he is expanding efforts of the Opioid Fraud and Abuse Detection Unit. He has assigned 12 experienced prosecutors to focus solely on investigating and prosecuting opioid-related healthcare fraud cases in a dozen hotspot locations around the country. One of the specifically identified hotspot locations is California. The 12 prosecutors will be working with the FBI, 
the DEA, and the HHS to target and prosecute doctors, pharmacies, and medical providers who have profited from the epidemic. The detection unit is using data to track anomalies in the disbursement of prescription opioids to find those who are fueling the epidemic. And the data analytics team will help find the telltale signs of opioid-related healthcare fraud by identifying statistical outliers. That team can tell which physicians are writing opioid prescriptions at a rate that far exceeds their peers, how many of a doctor's patients died within 60 days of an opioid prescription, the average age of the patients receiving these prescriptions that pharmacies are dispensing, and which pharmacies are dispensing a disproportionate amount of opioids in regional hotspots for opioid issues. This information gives a clear indication of who needs to be closely examined. In addition, the Justice Department will award nearly $20 million in federal grants to help law enforcement and public health agencies address prescription drug and opioid abuse. With growing pressure on physicians to replace opioid medications for pain relief, scientists are focusing attention on developing non-opioid pain relief strategies. And now, a new study published by the Journal of the American Medical Association, Surgery, claims that inadequate postoperative pain management has profound effects. Long-term effects of poor pain management include transition to chronic pain and prolonged narcotic consumption, which can result in opioid dependence. This has caused increased interest in non-pharmacological treatments to reduce pain after total knee arthroplasty. Yet little consensus supports the effectiveness of these interventions. But researchers at Stanford University conducted a review and meta-analysis to evaluate the effectiveness of commonly used drug-free interventions for pain management after total knee arthroplasty. The researchers identified 39 randomized clinical trials involving 2,400 patients. The most commonly performed interventions include continuous passive motion, preoperative exercise, cytotherapy, electrotherapy, and acupuncture. The researchers found moderate evidence that acupuncture and electrotherapy improved post-operative pain management, and reduced opioid consumption. There is very low certainty evidence that cytotherapy reduced opioid consumption, but no evidence that it improves perceived pain. The findings suggested that continuous passive motion and preoperative exercise do not help alleviate pain or reduce opioid consumption. Several limitations of the study are noted in the article. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Lloyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.